Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services, for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today we have Jory Rose. She has two daughters and has a fiance. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, (laughs) It's a little rough time, so hopefully you guys can get married soon uh, when we're all lifted from this quarantine. She is also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, She is a mindfulness and meditation teacher, which we're going to get into techniques about meditation and mindfulness and things like that. And then she's also a coach, author, and speaker. And Jory has helped thousands of people to live happier and more fulfilling lives through living with greater awareness and compassion, allowing them to decrease their stress, anxiety, and shed unhealthy habits, patterns, and mindsets. Jory is host of the podcast Journey Forward with Jory Rose and has authored two mindfulness books, Gourmet Learners to be Mindful and Mindful. It's elementary and has been featured in OprahMag.com, NBCNews.com, Business Insider, KTLA News, and more. Welcome to the show, Jory. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. I really appreciate the work that you're bringing to the world and glad to be here as a guest today. Awesome. We're glad to have you. I'm really excited to get into this conversation. Before we get into what you're doing today and um, all of that, you want to take us back a little bit to high school, college age, what life was like, what you were going through. Uh, It'll help set the tone of how you got into where you are now. Yeah, it's actually a huge piece of how I got into where I am. Um, you know, I like to say that I was raised with fear and anxiety on a silver platter. Um, a lot of the things that were just worst case scenarios happened in my family of origin growing up. And it allowed me to stay uh, very fearful, very dependent on my mom, very um, dependent on my then boyfriend in high school who became my husband, who's not my ex-husband. But it was, you know, it, the world felt like a really scary place. When I was three years old, my parents got divorced. And when I was 10, my dad committed suicide, uh, coupled with family history that my mom's parents were killed in a car accident when my mom was 16. She was the only survivor of the accident. So living with these real life traumas really affected the way that I saw the world and the way I grew up. And how, how could it not, right? What it led me to was living in a lot of fear like I said, feeling like the world was a really scary place and being afraid to explore, being afraid to be on my own, being afraid to venture out. um, Because again, all the kind of worst case scenarios weren't just what ifs, they were real in my family. And even the things that didn't directly affect me still directly affected me. Um, That's the way transgenerational trauma works, as we know. And I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart and really built the life I dreamt. You know, I always wanted two daughters. My ex is one of two boys. His dad is one of two boys. His uncle had two boys. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm having girls. I always wanted girls. And damn it, I got, I got my two <laughs> girls. They're now 14 and 16. I have amazing relationships with them. They and I are super, super close. 
which in large part, I, I really believe has been a, a big piece of my mindfulness practice that I really developed early on in my parenting. So I have taken parenting really, really, really seriously. And it's paid off. My kids tell me all the time, you know, you need to write a book. Like normally we don't get feedback from our kids until they are parents and they realize how hard it was. I get feedback from my teenagers. So it really is validating um, in our relationship. But I, I woke up one day in my early 30s and was like, I don't remember how I got here. I don't remember making the conscious choices to get to where I am because I was on that trajectory of what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next, partly because that helped keep me feel safe. Because, right. you know, a way to squelch anxiety is to overplan. Yes. And a way to feel secure in what is otherwise feeling like an insecure world is to hold on tightly to what you have. And while none of it was bad, you know, um, I, I really had the life I built and yet something wasn't right within it. And what wasn't right was I didn't know who I was. And it was, you know, an existential crisis and a really a, a, a leap of faith to be able to say, can I give up the safety and security for the, the unknowns, whereas the unknowns had always been the scary part. And here I was, I made the mindset shift to see the unknown as where possibility lied because I was, there was a lot missing in my marriage and it wasn't a bad marriage by any accounts. It just wasn't fulfilling in the way that I grew into needing. And when someone is growth minded and one person is fixed mindset oriented, create some challenge in that growth trajectory that I, I became, you know, just kind of growing. So that, that mindset shift was a really powerful one in recognizing I had a choice in how I viewed my experience in my body, my physiology, that I could have a choice in what I did with my thoughts, whereas it was always an automatic response. It was always a fear. It was always an anxiety. And that worked until it didn't work anymore. I'm picking up on a few things there with the mindset shift. And you know, you said that it wasn't a bad marriage, but I can equate it to somebody who's been through domestic violence because that's one of the reasons that they stay is like, it's, it's a known, right? it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's what they lived. It's, and it's what they're going through and they understand it. Whereas the unknown is like, well, I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know, you know, if my friends are going to come back to me. I don't know where my next meal will come from money, job, all of that stuff. And it's mm -hmm. so scary and unknown that that's why they stay in that marriage until they get that mind sh mindset shift. Well, and part of it, there's layers to that. And I, you know, to speak to the layers of that part of it is the way our brains are designed, right? So we have a negativity bias in our brain. And when we were cavemen, that served us. That's the part of our brain that tuned into a, a threat and it helped keep us safe. And the flaw in the design of our brain is that we don't always know what's a real threat and a perceived threat. And so we can get in our own way, but the, but the way it shows up is we're always focusing on the negative. Right. And so until we have the ability to shift out of that negative thinking, knowing that it's just human to have a negative, you know, reactive cycle of thoughts. Also knowing the more I focus on what's wrong, the bigger it becomes. So if I stay stuck in, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, then we're going to believe that because we also know that the way our brain is designed, the more attention you give a thought, more neurons fire off. It connects those neurons. It strengthens that thought. 
It becomes part of our neural code, becoming part of who we are and our way of being. And so we've got to interrupt the thought pattern. So for me, the interruption in that thought pattern was here I had the known and the unknown. And the known was unfulfilling. And the known was causing me existential angst of who am I? How did I get here? Where do I want to go? And the unknown I had always labeled as that big black hole of abyss of fear. And it wasn't until I recognized that what I was seeking, what I was seeking was, you know, happiness, fulfillment, connection, vulnerability, communication, all these things I was seeking, when I really looked at it, only resided in the unknown. Because I had the known and they weren't there. So I had to make the choice to shift seeing the unknown from a place of, oh, that must be bad because I don't know it, to wait a second. This could be awesome because I get to create it. And that was like this big aha moment. And there was a, a turning point where that helped me along with this mindset. I was at a, a conference one evening. It was like a, just a two-hour evening for women. It was a women in wisdom conference. And there was a motivational speaker up on the stage. And she said she was going to pull a name at random out of a hat for someone to come up on stage and come up on stage and speak for two minutes. And as she announced this, you heard this collective groan across the room. <laughs> like, oh my God, I hope she doesn't choose me. Like, holy shit, what are we going to do? Like, oh, like all of this, right? You could just, you heard it, it was palpable. And she said, okay, what are you guys experiencing in your body right now? And people were describing the physiological response of the, oh no, right? The physiological response was increased heart rate, starting to sweat, getting a pit in the stomach, you know, kind of like a tightness in the throat, some fear coming in. And people were just shouting out all these answers and everyone called like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too, me too. And she said, okay, everything you've just described is simply a physiological response in your body. And you're in the habit of labeling that physiological response as fear. She said, what would happen if you just labeled it as simply energy moving through my body, which is all it really was. And if you label it as energy moving through your body, you then could decide to plug it in and use it to benefit you rather than seeing it as fear where it would then stop you. Something about the way she said that, or maybe I was ready to hear it. It made all the sense in the world to me. And she then said, okay, so I'm not going to pick a name at random out of a hat. And you heard this collective sigh of relief. And she said, but I will give you the opportunity to come up here and speak and to, to support you in that courage. We're going to give you a standing ovation on the way up and we'll give you a standing ovation on the way down. And I, I felt all of that energy in my body that I was used to labeling as fear. And I threw my hand up in the air. I'm like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to choose to plug this energy in to propel me forward rather than to have it stop me and hold me back. So I raised my hand. She called me up. I got a standing ovation as I walked on stage. I don't know what the hell I spoke about for two minutes, but I did. And I got a standing ovation as I got off stage, but it was a big turning point. It was a really big turning point. So that was one of two major, the other one is even a bigger one, but that was one of the ones that started me having this ability for this mindset shift. When you were laying in bed or sitting at home thinking about, you know, the, the known and the unknown, was it, you said an aha moment, but was there calculated moves that you made? Because I think that there are a lot of people that are sitting at home, like, okay, I know all of what I want is not here and in the unknown, but 
everybody has that fear to go forward. So were there steps to get you to that conference or were you, okay, I'm going to start listening to podcasts and we start reading books and, you know, get kind of start in that? Like what were your first steps? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it was really my professional path um, that got me there. But I also know that I would have gotten there no matter what, because I believe that's just the way the universe works, that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So I had had a master's in counseling psychology that I graduated in 2002. And I had started on my hours to become a therapist. And in California, you need 3,000 hours of internships to be able to become qualified to take the state exam. And I got about halfway through my hours. And I was, I'm young for my grade. And I graduated college in three years. So I graduated college when I was 20 years old. And then I went right, I took a semester off before going into graduate school. All my point, my point being, I was 24 years old with zero life experience being people's therapist. And I got about 1500 hours in to the 3000 and I realized I was miserable. I had no life experience. I didn't know how to best show up and serve people. And at the time I felt like, I had this happy little bubble of a life and that people's quote problems were interfering with that. And I wasn't ready. So I stopped to have my kids. I'd never given up on anything. So stopping that trajectory towards that, you know, completion of those hours felt like a huge judgment on me after I just paid for private school graduate education. But I figured if the skills that I learned gave me the ability to be a better wife and mom, then that was worth it. Uh, about eight years at home and I loved being a stay-at-home mom. There's nothing I would have traded for that. And when my daughter was in kindergarten, my youngest, I was feeling this existential crisis creep in and I went to therapy for the first time in my adult life. And I'm sitting on that therapist couch that first day and something about being in the room, I wanted to be in that space, but I'm like, I want to be on the other side of the couch. So it gave me the impetus to go back for my hours And because you need to complete those hours within six years, I was outside that window. So I had lost all the hours I gained Mm. and I had to start over again. And as the universe would have it, I contacted my old supervisor that I had worked with eight years earlier and she worked with schools and it was January. And so I figured I'd have to wait till September for a new school to the school year to start so I could get a placement. She had had a school come on mid-year. she had had an intern lined up. And a week before I called her, the intern called and say, I can't come back. My baby's still too young. And here I call after not having heard from her for three, for eight years. So I literally started interning the next week. And in the midst of that, I was sitting in her office one day and saw a book titled Mindfulness. And I had never heard of mindfulness before. I had no idea what it was. I never meditated a day in my life. But it piqued my curiosity, which led me to asking her about it, which led me to her having me call one of her interns who was teaching mindfulness to kids, which led me to taking um, a class that happened to be starting the following week. So all of it, like the timing was impeccable. I started to realize this was the answer I needed without even knowing the question I was having. Like I, I didn't know what I was learning, but I knew I needed to learn more. That very first class, as I look back on it, was not very good, but it was enough to teach me I need to slow down, that I had been living in my head. I had been believing all my thoughts. I had been believing all my fears and anxieties, and I needed to slow down, and I needed to learn how to tune into my body and trust who I was. I first had to find who I was, but then I had to trust it because I had felt like for so long 
this cognitive dissonance of feeling one thing but thinking another. And when your intuition or your gut or your heart feels one thing, but your head feels another, I was in the habit of believing my head because I thought logic was the answer. Because on paper, everything was great. In my body, it wasn't. And I had been in the habit, like I said, of trusting my thoughts, but it detached me from trusting my intuition. And so in that very beginning stages, mindfulness, and I can talk about that more of what it actually means, because at the beginning, I didn't even know what it meant, even though I was practicing it, but it taught me how to slow down. It taught me how to breathe. And through that slowing down, I was able to look at myself compassionately. I was able to look at myself with curiosity. I was able to observe uh, some of these patterns, some of these stories I've been believing, some of these belief systems, even some of these family of origin and transgenerational traumas that I thought defined me. So I, I, I was looking at all of that. And that really got me on that trajectory of being able to plug my energy in as energy rather than fear because I was learning to value, okay, let me just observe this right now. Can I see this as just energy? Can I break myself of the habit of seeing this as fear and anxiety? And without a practice to guide me how to do that, there would have been no way I could have done it. There would have been no way because I didn't have the social circle that was inclined towards mindfulness or meditation. I didn't have the family members who were practicing those skills. They were still, you know, living in that reactivity of fear and um, codependency. And so I had to break out of this way of being to really uncover who am I and let me choose for myself how to consciously move forward because it was all on autopilot. Unless we're in something that truly fulfills us, we're all on autopilot. That's how, mm -hmm. you know, just that's how the human body works where it's like, okay, I know what's happening and I know what is going to happen next. and I know how it's going to end. So let's just. It's get predictable. It. And there's safety yep. in that predictions. And, you know, right now, as you and I are talking, we're in the midst of, you know, this coronavirus and we're in the midst of shelter in place, my kids, and, you know, we're starting our third week of not having school. And I actually think this is, you know, the universe's way of calling upon all of us to get off autopilot and slow down. And let's be intentional about maybe some of the things in our lives that weren't working, because until we're forced to slow down, whether by choice or by happenstance, it's easy to stay on that trajectory. It's easy to be on that hedonic treadmill of just running, you know, in whatever thing we feels we feel is serving us until we recognize like, wait, maybe that's not serving me. Right. And so now how can I, now that I've slowed down and now that I see that this isn't serving me, okay, so now what? Because the, the habit is to go right back into the pattern because it's familiar. Like even when I work with clients and I ask the question, you know, we talk about being stuck in our lives. And I'll always ask the question, how is staying stuck serving you? And they'll always be like, oh, it's not. I hate it. This is not serving me at all. And I will challenge that. And I will say to them, well, actually, you are being served by staying stuck. You're getting some secondary benefit by being stuck. So let's be curious about what that secondary benefit is. Well, it's safety because it's known. It's security. It's comfort. It's predictable. 
It gives me an identity. It keeps me connected to my family of origin or to my kids. Like we have a lot of secondary benefits of staying stuck because it's much more disruptive of the pattern to get unstuck. Right. Um, but there's this beautiful quote by Anai Nin. I, I had like a couple major root markers of things that like really all came together at the same time. This quote was one of them. It says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was greater than the risk it took to blossom. I love that. And it's so powerful to me because at some point we, got, we can't hold it in so tight. At some point we've got to blossom and that's going to be risky. And the risk is greater to not do it. Right. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, even in this COVID Corona space that we're in, this is the time where millionaires are made because we're all forced to reevaluate what we're doing and what we're going to do and trying to do. And, you know, the people who can sit there and, and make that pivot are going to be the next millionaires. They're going to be the next Steve Jobs. They're going to be the next Bill Gates. And they're going to be, you know, all of these people like Grant Cardone was born in the 08 recession. And so I think that that's really what I pulled from what you were saying is like, you know, everybody has a measure of success. It doesn't have to be money. It can be happiness, you know, but to be successful during this time, you have to make that mindset shift. And again, success is going to be fine differently for everybody. And I'm so grateful right now that I have a practice to fall upon, a set of tools and a framework for a way of being, because I can tell you if I didn't, I would, I'd be really anxious right now. And I'm not because I'm present because I'm not letting my mind wander to the what ifs and the unknowns and the fears. And that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. My mind is still human. It's still going to get pulled into that space, but it's up to me to decide what to do with it when it does. You know, like my yoga teacher always says, you don't have to stick where you land. And I love that because when in yoga, when shifting positions, you can readjust, you can pivot, right? You don't have to make that transition smooth. It doesn't have to be a smooth transition, but if you're in a position that's causing you suffering, by all means, adjust it. I love mindfulness and meditation and yoga because there are so many things that connect to not just what's going on up here, but what you're doing in your everyday normal lives. And you can take those practices and put them in place in your daily routines. It doesn't just have to be when you're on the yoga mat. It doesn't just have to be when you're meditating. It can be the entire time well, and that you're living. And, and that's the mindfulness piece, right? The meditation is the, on the mat or on the cushion, so to speak, right? That, that's the formal practice. And I teach weekly meditation or I, I'd rather say I guide weekly meditation. And now since all of this has arisen, I have a Facebook group where I now am doing daily meditations. And four days a week, I'm doing like five or seven minute ones. And then twice a week, I'm doing 30 minute meditations. And that is the practice. Like I look at meditation as practice because I think there's a lot of assumptions, judgments, and misconceptions to what meditation is and is not. And people are fearful to begin, begin trying it because they often believe, oh, my mind is really busy. I have a lot of thoughts. I can't meditate. Or I've tried it and I'm, quote, not good at it. Or I get too restless. Or I get bored. Or I fall asleep. Or I get distracted. Yeah. That's all meditation. That does not mean it's good or bad. It just means you're human. 
And so I feel like I, I teach it really well because I help people understand that's not the end answer. That's part of the, that's part of the process. And so we use all of that as awareness to be curious about our habits of what we do when we're distracted, what we do when we're restless, of what we do when we're bored, of what we do when our body's in pain, what we do when our mind wanders. So that's a formal practice. And I think this is a good time to insert how I define mindfulness because even after years of going on retreats and workshops and classes and trainings and silent meditation retreats and certifications, I still was confused on what mindfulness really was because it feels like this very esoteric practice that's kind of like this intangible, like what does it really mean? I've really become, I think, quite skilled of explaining it in a way that feels really tangible and relatable and integratable because as long as it remains this kind of woo-woo esoteric practice, it's harder for people to bring into their lives in a way that is meaningful. And as long as it's seen as something out of reach, then we're all never going to find a way to bring it in. Exactly. Yeah. So I I really try to, um, not I try to, I do, I hold deep integrity to the foundations of this practice while allowing freedom in people to find their own relationship to it. Right. Like when I first started almost 10 years ago, it was really under the belief that in order to practice mindfulness, you needed to have a really strong foundation of meditation. And I was instructed at the time that you needed to meditate for 20 to 40 minutes a day in order to be able to develop your mindfulness practice. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's not going to work for me. I don't have 20 to 40 minutes a day. And if I do, it's probably not going to be in meditation. Right. Like I've got two young kids and I'm trying to, you know, build up a career or go through a divorce. Like that's probably not going to be where I'm putting my time and energy. So I challenged that. And I knew that for me to begin anything was to meet myself where I'm at. So that was my first step was really understanding this. How can I meet myself where I'm at and still practice these tools with integrity? So for me, knowing that sitting on a cushion for 20 to 40 minutes a day was not going to be where I started. I didn't judge myself for that. I was like, okay, let me just know myself. And for me, I, I actually got started in my car. So what that meant for me was rather than look at the time I was commuting as an annoyance or, you know, something that I had to do, again, mindset shift of I was able to see that when I was in my car, when I was alone without my kids in the car, this was a gift of time. Like nobody was talking to me. No one was asking anything of me. I didn't have to be anywhere other than exactly where I was. If there was traffic, I didn't cause it. So I couldn't fix it. Like not my, you know, not my fault. Getting mad at the traffic wouldn't make it go away. It would only make me more frustrated. And I used to, this was when I was interning and my internship was like 20 minutes from my house. I used to, in those morning commutes, ramp up the radio, get on the phone, you know, like I was distracted. And I would find that I'd get to my internship at the school, not super present, kind of annoyed because I had just spent this, you know, frustrating time in the car. 
And I was always like, okay, so this afternoon I've got to drive here, then I've got to do this, and then I've got, what am I going to make for dinner? And, you know, like my mind was always running. So I decided to look at that time in my car as a gift. How am I going to use it? So I turned off the radio, I put down the phone, and I would just be in my car and I would breathe, keep my eyes open, of course. I would tune into my surroundings. Like I live in a beautiful area and tuning into the hills and the flowers blooming and the trees and noticing the colors of the cars around me. Like that's a meditation because I was slowing down. I was present. I was aware. I was in my breath. I was in my senses. And I would find that when I'd get to where I was going, I felt a little bit more peaceful. And so that prompted me to go sit on a cushion. But if I was told I had to start there, there's no way I would have done that. So I no. really, I met myself where I was at and it worked for me. That's awesome. And that's why I tell people like anyone can do this. There's no one that this is quote better for than and another. It's, it's dispelling those myths that I'm supposed to feel calm or Zen-like afterwards. I'm supposed to clear my mind. Okay. Let me tell you that, you know, your mind is going to produce between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. Just because you're sitting in meditation, your mind doesn't care. It is not going to all of a sudden start thinking just because you're like, okay, mind, you know, turn off now. I'm in meditation. It's not going to do that. So what we have to learn is to strengthen the muscle of our brain to not grab onto those thoughts and just be like, oh, look, there that one goes. Oh, look, there's another one. Okay, that's interesting. There's that one. So the more we stay in observation and in awareness, the less power those thoughts have. Yes. And, you know, there's no attachment to a particular outcome we're trying to reach. It's just, can I just be present with what is? So that's the formal piece of the meditation. And of course, that transfers to, to quote, sitting on a cushion, if that speaks to you. Taking a mindful walk is a beautiful form of meditation. What does that mean? Walking on purpose. Noticing your feet touching the ground, noticing the smell in the air, noticing your surroundings, noticing the quality of the temperature, noticing the warmth of the sun, just being present on your walk. Or like how many of us go to the gym, get on the treadmill, put on our headphones, turn on the TV on the treadmill and just walk or run just thinking, I just have to distract myself till this is over. Right. Right. Because we're, we're not trying to, we're trying to bypass having to do what we're doing. So meditation is simply saying, just be present in what you're doing and let that be a meditation. So then to say from that basis of meditation, what's mindfulness? So I define mindfulness in three words. It's living with greater awareness, living with greater attention and greater intention. So what does that all mean? Sounds lovely, but again, what's the tangible meaning to that? It's having greater awareness of whatever is arising in the present moment. So what's arising? Well, we have what, things going on inside of us, things going on around us. So we've got thoughts, we've got emotions, we've got sensations in our body. And then outside of us, we've got distractions, whether that is, you know, people around us, sounds, noises, the news, you name it, right? Whatever's going on outside of us. To pay attention to me is to notice with curiosity rather than judgment and compassion rather than judgment, the typical ways in which you normally react to whatever's going on inside of you or whatever's going on around you. 
because we've got ways that we react against all of that distractions, defenses, whatever it is. So I want to pay attention to my habits, my patterns, my mindsets, my tendencies. And then I want to have intention. So I can be consciously choosing my response rather than unconsciously having a reaction to whatever's coming up. So the intention piece is to get off the autopilot, break the patterns, break the habits, know why you're doing what you're doing. And so those three words to me are the crux of it. And, you know, it's all about being in the present moment, because if we're not in the present, well, where, where are we? We wander to the past where we ruminate, which leads to depression. We wander to the future where we get anxious. Those go to the what ifs. So it's about noticing when the mind wanders and just gently inviting it back to the here and the now. Uh, and, and I think, you know, underneath all of that is a fundamental ability to stay curious and compassionate because our tendency is to be judgmental. That's part of that negativity bias. But if we can stay curious and compassionate to what's arising, we tend to be less reactive. Yes. And I, I was just going to say, like, I think that this is so cool because it gives people at home tangible things to do. A lot of the people that uh, we service and that we help with the shelter in place or sheltering in place with their abuser, there is no escape. There is no you know, let me get into my car and leave and go somewhere, go to the gym, like all of those escapes, like you said earlier, are not there. And um, I think this gives tangible steps to those women of, okay, this is something that I can do in the house and, you know, take myself and, you know, be present in other things that are happening, maybe not the abuse, you know, but be present into the walk that you go on when you when you do get out of the house or anything like that. I think that it's really key for these women. So thank you. <laughs> it's huge. And, you know, a big piece of, like I said, a big piece of being mindful is being compassionate. And I want to speak to self-compassion for a minute because there's, um, I, I lead women's retreats every year. And, and the retreats that I did last year was based on self-compassion because I find that this is one of the biggest areas that women get stuck is because we are quick to judge ourselves and believe that we don't have self-worth. And so we tend to not be easily as compassionate to what we're experiencing. So there's amazing work by Kristen Neff, who is one of the country's leading researchers in self-compassion. And she defines self-compassion as having three components to it, that there's kindness, that's you know the voice of our inner critic, turning that to a kinder voice. So that's turning down the volume on our judgments and being our own best friend. Like, what would you say to your, your very best friend? Because we tend to talk in our own minds like we would talk to nobody else. Right. So that's one piece. The other piece that Kristen Neff defines compassion is mindfulness. So the part of the mindfulness piece is to accept what's arising in the moment without judgment. It's just being with what is, right? It's not denying, resisting, ignoring, pushing away, or it's not grasping, clinging, holding on to. It's really just allowing what is. Because the more we can allow, the less reactive we are, the more ability to get out of our head into our body to be more responsive, to be more intentional. The third piece is common humanity. 
And this is the idea of you are unique, but your problems are not. So you're not alone. So this idea of I'm not alone being able to help you through whatever challenge, knowing a lot of this is part of the human experience. So as I was preparing for my women's retreats, I was realizing, okay, all of that's really great. And I don't think it's enough. And it's interesting that we're talking about this today, Heather, because my thought was a woman in an abusive situation can practice not judging herself and having a kind inner voice, being her own best friend. She can practice accepting what is without judgment, having that mindfulness piece, and she can have common humanity. And is she really being self-compassionate to herself if she's staying in that relationship? Right. And it made me realize there's three more pieces that I'm bringing to the self-compassion answer of what it means to be self-compassion. So I want to add on because this is where I think the true crux of compassion comes in. One of them is to really know yourself, to really uncover your core values and your worth. Because then once you really know yourself, like deep level self-awareness, I'm not talking like deep psychotherapy work, but just really knowing who you are and what you're worth, right? We then have two more layers to truly be self-compassionate. One is what I call advocacy. We got to stand up for ourselves. To me, you know, being able to draw really healthy boundaries is one of the most self-compassionate acts you can do to say, I'm worthy enough to draw this boundary because I value myself. And the second of the, the next step is in addition to advocacy, we need taking action or agency, which to me is about surrendering to say, you know what, I can be kind to myself. I can have that mindful acceptance. I can be in common humanity, but I also need to take some action and surrender and let it go if this is not serving me. So it's interesting because I had that whole framework in thinking about an abused woman thinking about how under those three answers of definition of self-compassion Kristen Neff gave, kept her in that abusive relationship. So I want to be able to say like, how can you have the self-compassion and then the courage to take action based on your value and your worth simply as being human? We're all worthy. Despite what patterns of codependency and trauma you've experienced to be told and therefore have believed otherwise, everyone is worthy of feeling safe. That's a birthright. Happiness is a birthright. Security is a birthright. No one has earned it better, you know, than, than someone else. So I think it's really important as we talk about mindfulness and this practice of compassion being a fundamental component of it, that it doesn't seem right to me to only rely on those three answers of what does compassion mean unless we're creating agency and advocacy and, and deep self-awareness. I appreciate you going the step further to speak to our audience directly and to give them those tangible things to work on um, in their own situation instead of just a broad overview of mindfulness mm -hmm. and, and self-compassion. Yeah. And, you know, I think we all, despite, you know, what it may look like from the outside, we all have our own demons. We all have our inner struggles. We all are not immune from moments of all of this, right? That's the common humanity piece like this, you know, we're all in this boat together to some extent, 
And for some, it's, it's worse than others. And I, and I don't mean to discount people who are in a really difficult place, but I also know, you know, as we, you and I talked for a few moments before coming um, on hitting record, you know, with this shelter in place, I, I feel very fortunate. Like I, my home is a safe place for me. I love my home. I can take my dog for a walk. I can be home with my daughters. We get along really well. Not everyone has the luxury of their home being a safe place. And, you know, I've seen people have varying degrees, like on Facebook, for example, of how they're viewing this shelter in place. Like for some, it's a staycation. This is great. This is the time I've been asking for. And for others, this is their biggest hell. Yep. And, you know, part of what my belief has been around all this is anything that people have been experiencing, good or bad, prior to all this coronavirus affecting us all, whatever was under what I'm calling a flashlight of awareness is now under a floodlight of awareness, right? So maybe it shined on a small little area like a flashlight would, and now we're like in this huge floodlight lighting up a parking lot. This sheltering in place is bringing to the forefront of what is most present with people, good or bad. And you know, the other thing that I think many are experiencing is the typical defenses against what maybe hasn't been very good aren't aren't available to people so you know you can't stop at the bar on your way home from work and cut the edge off before coming home to your family you can't go to your yoga class or go run it out on the treadmill you can't meet up with your girlfriends for dinner you know or go to a concert or a sporting event right now for your release so in the absence of these common ways of defending against from being with what is, it's forcing everyone to have to face what is. And I'm an optimist by nature. So I believe that this is really the universe's call upon all of us to practice mindfulness right now. To yes. say, hey, how can we be with what is? What are we observing? How can we respond differently than get on the same patterns of what's always been? And I think what's going to rise ultimately is going to be some great shifts because I think it's going to give people greater courage to get out of something that's not working because it's going to be highlighted even more so than it's ever been. Like, you know, do I want the next 20 to 30 years to look like the past two or three weeks? <laughs> right. <laughs> And, you know, I know that that's not an easy step for everybody. And I know that it's not what feels like an option for many people. And if we stay stuck in that mindset, then it's never going to be. With all of this quarantine and, and shelter in place going on, what are you doing to move forward with your career and your mindfulness and your practice? What are the things that you have shifted to, to grow and thrive in this yeah. climate? Well, one, like we're doing now, I love doing interviews. I love having the platform of my own podcast to give greater reach for tools, for awarenesses of ways that we can all heal individually and collectively right now. I still see all my clients virtually. So I still get to do what I love to do, which is be there and guide and support people through whatever their journeys are. But on a bigger scale, um, I've been really focusing on growing my community. I've got, um, my branding is called Journey Forward. And this to me is the absolute fundamental 
mindset belief around mindfulness is how do I get unstuck from what's not working and create new habits and patterns to move forward in my life. So that journey forward is something that I'm, I'm building community around. And I've got a Facebook group that I'll be happy to get the, the link out into your audience, people who want to join. But I've really been called to step up in service right now. And so that Facebook group has been one of the great places for that. I do some on Instagram as well, but I really focus the majority in that group because it just is more contained engagement. So it's looking, what, what is that looking like? It's four mornings a week. I'm guiding daily morning meditations. And then in the early evenings, I'm coming on doing videos of mindfulness tools that people can ask me, you know, different areas and where they're feeling stuck. And then I'll address that in the evening videos. And then twice a week, I'm guiding longer meditations, Wednesdays and Sundays. Those are about 30 minutes. And then on Saturdays, doing a live Q&A and addressing, you know, people sending in, hey, this is where I'm really stuck. How can mindfulness and meditation and, you know, as a therapist, I'm kind of accessing all aspects, right? So we've got the contemplative, the neuroscience, the psychological, the social, the emotional. So I'm coming at it from all angles of how we can get through this right now. And to me, it feels, um, I'm, when I'm guiding and when I'm teaching, it helps me stay grounded. So it's, you know, I lovingly say when, um, before all this, people would come to my meditations at my office and, you know, I would thank them for showing up because I needed it. So like it serves me, but it does, you know, because if I'm guiding others in practice, that means I'm inherently practicing. So it keeps me really grounded and really centered. And again, I'm so grateful. I have a framework of tools to utilize and fall back on when my mind starts to wander or when I get stuck into that negative reactive thought or when I feel that anxiety in my body or when a family member or a client, you know, is beginning to spiral, I know how to get them back out. And it's not magic. It takes work. Like it's continuous work and it's possible. So I always say I hold the space that this is possible. Like even if my client or someone I'm working with doesn't believe it to be possible yet, that's okay. But trust me that I believe it's possible. And it's not a fake it till you make it. I don't believe in faking it till you make it because I'm too big into authenticity to fake it. But I am a believer in if your mindset is geared towards growth versus it being fixed. And if it's still fixed, trust that I will hold the growth mindset for you. And I will hold that container as I guide you through that. Awesome. I think that it's, everybody's going to be, you know, learning the different aspects of their business that can go virtual and reach a whole new audience that, you know, may not be able to come into their store or, you know, brick and mortar. And I think it's really amazing. All of the people that are making that pivot and finding those, those niches. And yeah, you know, it's created some different challenges and that's fine. You know, it, it is what it is. And I think ultimately, again, like I said in the beginning, when people, you know, are ready to learn, the, the teacher will appear. Yeah. And, like, you know, that Facebook group of mine has doubled in the past 10 days because people are seeking, people are, are, are in need right now of something bigger than themselves because we, you know, can feel really isolated in this isolation. 
And yet we can also stay really connected and we can stay very compassionate. And so to me, that's the benefit of creating ongoing community around all this is yeah. to not make anyone feel that they're alone through this process. Cause talk about common humanity, that component of self-compassion is Chris enough to find like, okay, the whole world right now knows what we're going through. Everybody like there's, okay. I, I have a, a, a contact of a, of a friend who lives in Bali. She hasn't been affected yet by any change in her lifestyle, but she's aware of how it's affecting the business of others around the world. So even if your lifestyle is not yet affected, it's affected in some capacity of your lifestyle. Right. So I can't think of another time, perhaps world wars, but maybe not even with countries that weren't involved. Like this is the ultimate in common humanity. So I believe we're being called to rise up and say, hey, hey world, you know, hey, common humanity. Let's all like, we're already harnessing this energy to stop the spread of this virus and to help one another. Look at how we can harness this. What else can we do with this? Can we save our planet? Can we save our, you know, climate change? Like it's possible we can come together when we need to. We just need to be slapped amongst the side of the face to say like, yeah, <laughs> speaking ourselves up. It's like, okay, we got to do this now, you guys. Like it's now or never. Right. Exactly. So wrapping up, we have a few questions that we ask every guest that comes on. Yes. Um, the, <laughs> the first one is what would the old you say to the new you? The old me would say to the new or, me. Sorry, other way around. What would the new you say to the old you? Okay, the new me sorry. say to the old me? Yeah. Don't stay in fear. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to work out. You're going you're gonna to thrive. We have talked a lot about um, meditation and mindfulness, um, but is, what is something that you can re recommend to our listeners to help them through a tough situation? The opposite of depression is hope. So I would say find one thing, even if it's really small, to wrap hope around. And a way to do that and to connect with that is, you know, I think uncovering your core values and making choices based on your values allows it easier to stick with your intentions and unapologetically be you. Is there any book or podcast or ebook or Audible? that you, or a quote, that you found strength in that you would also recommend to our listeners? As far as books, one of the biggest influences in my life is a guy named Dan Millman. Um, I told you about that women's event that was life-changing, but my bigger one that I didn't talk about was um, On Retreat with Dan Millman. And he's most well-known for the book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. My favorite book of his, though, is called The Laws of Spirit. And it's a journey into understanding the laws of the universe. And that to me was one of my most pivotal books that I read to help give me insight into spirituality and choice. Um, so I would say that that book was one that was really pivotal for me. The quote that I had said earlier about the Anainen quote, she has another one that was also very pivotal for me. And the other quote of hers is, I must be a mermaid. I have no fear of great depths, but I have great fear of shallow living. That was, you know, a big tool for me. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of great resources out there. And now they're available more than ever to anyone. I, I love my podcast. I think, you know, I think we all love what we do, but I, I really believe in 
mindfulness being the answer to everything because it's all about the ability of how we respond and not react to what's here and how do we make choice in moving forward. So all my episodes, whether it's just me talking or, you know, interviews are geared towards giving people the inspiration and then the tools. How can our listeners find you and hear more about you and, and, yeah, absolutely. Um, the best place to go is to my website, joryrose.com. It's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E.com. From there, you'll get links to my podcast. I've got some online courses. I've got uh, a big course I'm working on creating right now. You'll get access into, you know, my, to follow me on social media so you can, you know, find me in all of those areas. And I would like to offer your listeners a free gift if um, they would be so inclined on my website under online courses. And I'll make sure that I'll get you the direct link for this. But one of the classes I have is called Redefining Yourself. And it's short. It's seven classes of about five to seven minutes each. It's just an audio course. But it's direct and straight to the point of walking you through the framework of getting out and unstuck from the old habits and how to cultivate the mindfulness practice along the way and then undercovering your values and then having that intention process. And so if you go click on um, online courses to the redefining yourself class, there's a coupon code and it's simple. It's just free gift. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think this is something that I want to get the tools out there for people of we, we can get unstuck. Definitely. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for coming on and giving us all of your, not all of your knowledge, but your knowledge and wisdom and some tips and tricks to get Absolutely. through this. My pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone stay healthy, stay safe and stay sane. <laughs> thank you. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O thriving ATL, or online at 2thriving.org.